Prepping for the big uh, camping trip. Yeah, but that's not on our schedule for tonight. Well, it should be. No, tonight we're supposed to go over question number two. What's your family's top priority or rallying cry? Fishing. <laughs> Babe. No, listen, Allie, we've been married two months. This is our first camping trip as a family. I think that fish is a perfectly reasonable rallying cry. Babe, fish is not a rallying cry. We need a mutual goal. Fishing! <sighs> Babe! Oh, come on, Allie. Let me teach you how to tie some flies, all right? Oh, Jason, I just got off a 12-hour shift. My feet are killing me. My teeth feel like they're wearing sweaters, and I'm so hungry I'm willing to eat this. Okay. Look, I'm sorry. Just let me eat something and then shower first. No, no, it's just that I got to go into the office tonight and update the website. What? Yeah, unfortunately, we got to do it at night. I mean, there's got to do it when no one's around, and that's the only time we have a chance to. Wait a minute. What about when I get home, you know? I have to work at five in the morning. Oh. I don't think this is how it's supposed to be, hon. What do you mean? Well, Allie, we never even see each other. I mean... We're busy. Yeah, no, no, no. I know that. It's just... Maybe this whole family planning, this organizational thing is a little more important than I thought it was. All right, you know what? We're going to do this. I don't have to be until nine, okay? Okay. All right. Well, where did we leave off at? Okay, question two. Okay, so what is your family's top priority? What's your rallying cry right now? I got Don't it. How about say fishing. Figuring out our marriage. Well, the rallying cry is the big goal, right? Yeah. Okay, well, what we really need to do is get some organization going on in our family. Specifically, we want to quell this chaos. Wouldn't that be our rallying cry? <laughs> what? You don't like that? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's good. It's just, maybe that's not a goal, you know, per se. Uh, isn't, isn't a rallying cry supposed to take like two to six months to f- figure out? Which is why fishing is not a good rallying cry. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm starting to see your point. Hmm. Can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> well, I think I'm getting it. In a nutshell, we'll never be able to move forward unless we quell the chaos in general. But to do that, we need a tangible, specific goal that we can pursue together. Okay. I think that we should focus on fixing our marriage then. What do you mean? Hun, we've been together two months now, and we're already struggling. I mean, we never see each other. I think on average we see each other four hours a week. I told you, the hospital won't let me shift my schedule around. No, no, I know, and my schedule's not any better. It's just as bad. It's just, I'm just stating the obvious that we're never seeing each other, and I don't want to end up like my parents. Me neither. I don't want our whole marriage to to be spent struggling and striving, stressed out, all the while growing further and further apart. I miss you. Me too. Good, because I really need this plan to work. Okay, so our work schedules are the main culprit, and we can't change those. Okay, but we can pare down what we're doing. So what if I get off the HOA board? And I could stop teaching a couple of my dance classes during the week. That would free us up to have lunch on Mondays. Yeah, and Tuesdays and Thursdays, I can stop racquetball. Ah, but you love racquetball. Nah, I think I can think of another sport to get uh, hooked on. (laughs) 
Well, it would be pretty great to have actual lunch dates. All right, okay. So for the next two to six months, our rallying cry will be to fix our marriage through spending some more time together. Fishing. Fishing. Man, I love our church. <laughs> Guess you're teaching me how to cast again. Look at this. Pastor Brian is, is amazing. Maybe you should thank him. I will. That man changes lives. <laughs> All right. Come here. Suck-ups. <laughs> Thanks for that. Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? Really great to see every single one of you, especially if you're our guest. We're delighted to be with you to worship God and celebrate Him. If you were around last week, you know that we started this series that we call The Three Big Questions for Your Frantic Life. If you engaged in that message, you know that I actually assigned you some homework. The homework was asking and answering those questions or that question, depending how you want to see it. Who and whose are you? Who and whose are you? I don't know if your family gathered this week. Ours did. We call a family meeting on Tuesday night. Picture me standing at the head of our table with a big whiteboard flip chart thing. Dana and seven children and me gathered around that table, and we just had a ball filling those big white sheets of paper with the answers to those questions. I assure you, there was a ton of laughter, lots of hilarious things mentioned and written down. I'm not showing you those flip chart sheets, if that's all right with you. And uh, every day since our family meeting, the kids come home from school and they ask, are we having another family meeting tonight? And I have to break their little precious hearts and say, no, we're not. Because then I would have to read another Patrick Lencioni book, Death by Meeting, and well, we don't want to do that. And so the goal of that family meeting, or you and your couple, or you as a couple, or you by yourself, was to metabolize the answers to that question and turn it into a statement, remember? Maybe you got yours written out. If you did, I left some space on your notes page for you to sort of transfer that into if you'd like to. But I assure you, having that statement isn't enough to dial down the pace of your frantic life, is it? Nor is having that statement enough to exponentially multiply your kingdom of God impact, is it? I assure you that none of you this week who engaged in that homework got that statement scratched out, got to the end of writing it down, and then all of a sudden felt the pace of your life suddenly shift down in any meaningful, measurable way, did you? Just like I assure you that getting that statement down on paper didn't spiritually invigorate you nor lead tens of thousands of people to a relationship with Jesus. That's not enough, and here's why. Simply knowing the answer to that question or those questions, who and whose are you, that will not help you live in quadrant number two. It will not help you live in quadrant number two. What's quadrant number two, you ask? I want to show you. Some years ago, a really brilliant guy by the name of Stephen Covey, he developed what he called his four quadrants of time management. It goes something like this. Some of you are probably a bit familiar with it. Well, no, that's not going to work. Get a little more space. Here we go. I can draw boxes. U, I put this on your notes page. U stands for urgent. NU stands for not urgent. That's exactly right. I is what? Important. And NI is not important. And then these actually have numbers quadrant number one, quadrant number two, quadrant number three, and quadrant IV. 
And so you see, the goal of life is to live in quadrant number two. Let's start, though, at the beginning. Quadrant number one occupies the space that we would call urgent and important matters. Crisis that unfold, urgent pressing matters, deadlines, meetings, and so on. They all occupy this first quadrant kind of space. Activities that must be dealt with right now, they're immediate, they're important. They're sort of firefighting matters, reactive leadership you might call them. Something happens and you have to respond right now. Move over to quadrant number Two, this is, remember, the space that you want to spend as many hours of your life in as possible. Actually, the goal of this work we're doing, three big questions, it's actually about helping you structure your life so that you can live as much as possible in quadrant number two more than any of those other spaces. As you can see, quadrant number two is the not urgent and important matters of life. And so you go, why in the world would I want to live there? Because when you occupy space number two with the time that's in your day, you're working on the very most important stuff in the entire world, in your entire life, and you're doing it in a way, get this, that is not frantic. It isn't frantic. Quadrant two is not anywhere near frantic. These are the most important things you can ever do with the hours that God gives you in your day. Quadrant two is all about, if you want to sum up quadrant two, it's all about mission accomplishment for you or for you and your couple's life, for you and your family's life. Quadrant two living is you being every single thing that God made you to be with the best hours in your day. Quadrant two living is the activities of your life answering the question that you worked on this week. Who and whose are you? And it's answering them in such a way so that anybody, and I mean anybody in the world, could look on how you spend your time, what you give your life to, and be able to answer that question without you telling them the answer. Living in quadrant number two is all about you moving the rock, quote unquote. Whatever you've determined the rock is for you and your family, you and your spouse, you and your children, and so. Stuff like planning, Preparation, relationships, personal and spiritual development all take place in quadrant number two. And here's the big deal. These tasks do not have to be done right now. Get that. These are not urgent, frantic tasks. Now get this. They still have to be done. You still have to engage in them because if you actually want to accomplish anything of eternal, lasting, spiritually significant value, you have to get to quadrant two tasks but they can be scheduled for when you can give quality time, quality thought, intentionality and purpose to them. A great example of quadrant two living is say your answer to the question, who and whose are you? In that process, you determine that part of your role in this world is to do whatever it takes to connect people to God. Let's just say that you wrote that in, that's part of who God made you to be. And so for you to live in quadrant number two, that probably looks like you sitting down frequently across coffee shop tables and so with significant people in your life and sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with them, inviting them to a life of faith in Jesus Christ like you have a life of faith in Jesus Christ. That's quadrant two living. Now let's just say that you do that and you're frequently engaged in that and you get up and you go away from those tables you go away from those gatherings you leave the coffee shop you get about the rest of your day I guarantee that there's going to be a buoyancy about you for the rest of that day isn't there and it doesn't 
It's not tied to how that conversation went either. Because you, in the moments that you sat across that coffee shop table, the moments that you were sharing your faith, you were occupying that space, sharing God's love, sharing God's desire to live in relationship with that person. All the while you're doing that, that's quadrant two living. And by doing so, you are actually touching into part of what it looks like for you to be who God made you to be. It wasn't frantic. It instead was an indescribable sweet spot where everything in your life is just the way that it's supposed to be and that would not have happened if you were just living life on some sort of frantic tear. It was measured and it was planned. It was very, very intentional, very, very purposeful. That's quadrant two living. You want to live there as much as possible. You see why it matters so much that you spend as much time as possible in quadrant two. Your prayer time, your Bible reading time, your journaling time, that's all quadrant two stuff. Your meaningful family time, quadrant two stuff. Investing in your spiritual growth, the spiritual development of you and your spouse and your kids, quadrant two stuff. Sabbath and rest, quadrant two stuff. Quadrant two is all about quality time proactive leadership. That's what makes it quality. That's what makes it so important that we spend as much time as possible in that space. The most important stuff in the world, eternal stuff happens in quadrant two. Then there's quadrant three. And quadrant three, let's just call that distraction land. Quadrant three is distraction land. It's stuff that's not urgent, notice, and not important, right? It's stuff that made up of stuff that must be dealt with right now. At least that's the perception, but it just isn't important. Interruptions, lots and lots and lots of email, some mail that we get, popular activities. They're the time leeches of quadrant number three. A prime example of quadrant three living, anytime you have to take, you have to stop what you're doing and take an unwanted phone call, that's urgent and that's not important. Now, it doesn't mean you don't like the person that called you. You might really enjoy the conversation you have, but get it, you had to interrupt whatever it was that you were doing. Hopefully, it was something from quadrant number two so that you could take that call and talk to that person at a time when you weren't planning on doing that. And you don't want to spend very much time at all in quadrant number three. It's distraction land. Now, you're not going to eliminate that space entirely, but you want to minimize it, dial it down as much as possible. Then quadrant number four, I'm just going to tell you at the outset, you do not want to spend any time in quadrant number four. These are not urgent nor important matters. Wasted time. It's a time suck, really. Quadrant four. Time that you spend doing things don't benefit your life or anyone else's life. Quadrant four is the trivia stuff of life. Phone calls, time wasters, excessive TV watching, video game playing, Facebook stalking, web surfing, words with friends, etc. That's all quadrant number four, living. The goal in life is to spend as much time as possible in quadrant number two. Now, there's no way that you can spend all your time there, especially if you haven't been proactive, especially if you're constantly having to run around, put out fires, and so The goal is to get there. The goal of the series, Three Big Questions, is to help you make stepping stones to more and more and more quadrant two living. So you have that. Quadrant two living is the goal. You have your short paragraph that answers the who and whose are you question. 
There's this invitation to quadrant two. I want to show you the next place to take this that ought to help us all set up our lives so that we can make the most kingdom of God impact possible. And it's the second big question for your frantic life. It's this question, what now? What now? And we're going to go back to the Old Testament of the Bible. Last week we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they knew the answers to the first big question, who and whose are you? Those answers were the defining moment of whether or not they bowed down to King Nebuchadnezzar's big, dumb, 90-foot gold statue. Remember, they didn't bow down because they knew who and whose they were. And this very, very short verse from First Chronicles chapter 12 ought to be very defining for us as we answer this second big question, what now? First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Some of you might be familiar with this verse. From the tribe of Issachar, can you say that? Issachar, you got it, good job. There were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men, watch this, understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Knew the best course for Israel to to take. Now let me set this verse up for because you read that one verse sort of in isolation all by itself and it's not all that clear about what's happening. During the reign of King Saul, Israel faced this very crucial moment in its history. For the previous seven years, a guy named David had been king over part of the divided nation of Israel. But now, after the death of Ishbosheth, who was the youngest son of Saul, it was finally time for David to come into Jerusalem, rightfully taking the throne of the entire unified nation of Israel. And he was going to rule it as one non bifurcated, altogether nation. All the different tribes of Israel came together with King David. They concurred with him. It was indeed time for him to ascend to the throne of a united nation of Israel. They came to a place called Hebron. They met up with David. And interestingly, they came ready for battle, just in case there was any opposition to David becoming king, from any sort of King Saul hanger's honors. And if you read all of chapter 12 of 1 Chronicles, there's sort of a census of everyone who came to join King David, everybody who came to help him set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. All his supporters were there. It's quite a long list, and you read it, and it's so-and-so from this tribe, and how many they brought to defend and seat King David upon the throne. So-and-so from this tribe came, how many they brought. And you get down to verse 32, And you see that the men of Issachar were the very fewest on that entire list. Interesting. Only 200 of them. And yet those 200 men were incredibly valuable to King David. Why? Because they knew the best course for Israel to take. The men of Issachar were wise, godly men. They knew what they should do. They knew the course that they should take as a nation. They were men who, the text says, had an understanding of the times, of all the things that were going on and being done and needing to be done. Which means that the men of Issachar, not only were they knowledgeable of God's word, the scriptures, they were knowledgeable of God's world. They knew how to apply God's word to their lives. They did not in any way have their heads in the sand. They knew what was up. 
You know how there's all these polls out there that you see that ask this, do you think that America is on the right track or the wrong track question? You know those polls. They measure the public's mood, our mood as Americans. Well, just this past week, did you see the Gallup poll that revealed, watch this, just 24% of Americans, 24% of Americans feel that we're on the right track as a nation. Did you see that poll by any chance? That, by the way, is a historic low number for that question. Historic low. So that number comes out from Gallup this week, and all of a sudden, the political professionals came out of the woodwork, and they set about spinning that number for us, that 24% number. And the political professional's interpretation of that number is that it's all about, what do you think they said it was all about? The economy. They said it was all about the economy. They're saying that Americans feel like the majority of Americans, high majority of Americans, 76% of Americans, as a matter of fact, think we're on the wrong track because of the economy. Unemployment, looming foreclosures, mounting public debt, etc., etc. They're saying that the majority of Americans say we're going in the wrong economic direction. That is the political professional's interpretation. But I'd like to posit something a bit different. What if... The 76% of Americans who feel the country is headed down the wrong track, they are not responding that way in any way, having anything to do with the economy. What if they're saying, like one prominent columnist suggests, that they're responding to instead the American character or lack of American character? What if 70% of Americans are absolutely disheartened with who we are as a people and what kind of adults we're raising? Now just think about it with me. Every single news story that's broken through in the past few weeks have been really about who we are as a people at our very core. And it's quite disturbing, actually. Did you see or hear about this one? There's a tourist on vacation in the city of Baltimore. He was beaten pummeled, stripped, and robbed. All the while, a large number of young people surrounded him watching this happen and laughed at him. Nobody stepped in. Nobody stepped up to help him. How do we know they were laughing? Because instead of helping, they were videotaping it on their smartphones. They were capturing this tourist, one lone man, being pummeled, beaten, robbed, and they're laughing about it. No one's stepping in. Tell me that isn't about the character of Americans. How about this GSA scandal? Did you hear about this one? You really couldn't have missed it, right? An agency that's supposedly devoted to efficiency, it's outed instead as an agency of breathtaking overindulgence on your and my dime. They had a four-day regional conference in Las Vegas. They had clowns and mind readers and exorbitant. Expense. Now, what makes this one news isn't that a government agency wasted money, right? That's not news to us, is it? The reason that story is news, the reason it's disheartening to us, is that the people involved thought what they were doing was funny. They thought what they were doing was appropriate. See, it used to be that bureaucratic misuse of taxpayer money was like quiet. You needed investigators to find it, trace it, expose it, but not anymore. Now it's just a giant public joke. They held an award show at that convention. 
They sang songs, rapping about the perks of government jobs, brand new computer, underground parking, corner office, love to the taxpayer. It got huge laughs if you saw the video. Now how about this one? The Secret Service scandal. Men, the best of the best, sent overseas to guard the President of the United States of America, the highest office in the world, and the supposed best of the best gets sent home for drinking, partying, picking up prostitutes, some of whom might have been underage. Remarkable. They're supposedly the best of the best, right? That's been their reputation because that's been their reality. They're stereotypically tough, disciplined, mature men who have the most extraordinary job in the world. You know what their job is? Take the bullet. That's their job. Take the bullet. And then finally, there's this one. I'm sure you saw it. A major U.S. newspaper published late last week photographs of United States military troops in Afghanistan smilingly posing with bloody body parts of suicide bombers. And we see that, we read that, and you're kidding, right? I wish. I wish. Now, you take all those stories one by one, they might just sound like sort of the usual array of sins and scandals. We might say, yeah, part of living in a fallen world, right? But you sort of stack them all up end to end as a whole, and it gets somewhat more disturbing. It looms a whole lot larger in the windshield, doesn't it? That's just the past week. Doesn't it seem that something is going terribly wrong? And I don't mean this to be at all political. As a matter of fact, it isn't political. It's instead moral, character. It's who and what we're becoming as a people. And the caution is for us, especially us, especially the church, we cannot look around at all that and have our heads in the sand. We can't have our heads in the sand. We must be people like the sons of Issachar were people who knew and who know how to answer this what now question. We need to be people who understand the implications of everything that's going on around us and how we ought to proceed as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, as God's people, in light of these tectonic shifting realities. Jesus Christ in the New Testament, he confronts people somewhat like us, religious people, and he confronts them for having their heads in the sand regarding the spiritual and cultural landscape that was unfolding right before their eyes. Luke chapter 12, 54 to 56. He, that's Jesus, said to the crowd, a crowd of religious people, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. You can predict the weather, Jesus is saying. Good job to you. When the south wind blows, you say, it's going to To be hot, and well, it is. Hypocrites, Jesus says. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? You say, Jesus is saying, you can read the weather, you understand weather patterns and so... 
but you don't understand the more important spiritual ramifications of this season of time that we're living in. And he confronts them at an even deeper level when he says, when you do manage to form an opinion of what's going on and what you need to do in light of these shifts, your opinions are wrong, Jesus says. They're in disagreement with God and in disagreement with his word. Which means that there's a very strong invitation embedded in this second big question, what now? And it's that you would use that question, watch this, to be like the sons of Issachar. That you would this week grab hold of that question, that you would set it into your life, into the conversation with you and your spouse or you and your spouse and your children, that you would look around, that you would see everything that's happening all around you, the landscape of the world, culturally, spiritually, and so on, and that you don't just get busy doing stuff, but instead you set about doing the right things, the God-honoring things, because you're dialed in. Because you're dialed in to God. Because you're dialed into his word. Because you're dialed into the leading of God via his Holy Spirit on your heart and on your life. Which means as you take this question this week, and this is your homework assignment for this week, fundamentally, you're going to answer the what now question by laying that question out before God. What now, God? What now, God, do you have for us? Last week, it might have been about sort of dumping out everything about your family on big flip charts, making big lists of everything that's true about you. This week is nothing like that, actually. You're gonna seek God, and I pray that you'll seek him hard this week. God, what is the critical path that you're asking us as a family or me as a single or me and my spouse to take in this season. Based on all the things that I see happening around me, how am I to better serve you in the midst of this? How am I to better engage in the lost in the midst of this? How am I to be praying in the midst of this? How am I to be preparing my children to be your salt and light in a society whose moral and spiritual values are decaying, slipping further and further and further out of sight? God, what do you have for us now? Some people read about the sons of Issachar and they go, well, they were smarter, they had higher IQs, they were more spiritual, they were more godly than the rest of the tribes of Israel. That is not true. It just simply isn't true. The sons of Issachar knew what to do. They knew what Israel needed to do. Why? Because they were seeking God. They were pursuing God. They were hungry for God. They were asking God, what now, God? It's precisely what I'm asking, what I'm challenging you to do this week as you ask and as you answer that big question, the second one of the series, what now? Now, your answer to that question, it's going to come from the Lord because I guarantee you set a question out like that before the Lord, he's going to answer you. He's going to answer you. And the answer that he gives you will become what I hope will be, as you heard them talk about, your family, your couple's rallying cry. 
It becomes your rallying cry for a season. It becomes your single agreed upon top priority that you can rally around for unity and maximum mission accomplishment. This is what we're about. And here's what I want to tell you. This is fantastic. You answering this question with the Lord will provide you with the quickest and most dramatic sense of relief from your frantic life of anything else that you do. It will focus your life like a laser beam. What now, God? Here it is. Here it is. And here's just a little conversation starter for you and the Lord. As you ask him the what now question, maybe ask it this way. God, if you just had one thing for us to accomplish between now and Labor Day weekend, what would it be? God, if we just accomplished one thing as a couple or as a family or me as a single between now and Labor Day weekend, what might it be? And you're just going to lay it out before the Lord. And maybe you're going to sit in silence for an hour or two hours or maybe you'll spend silent time throughout the course of a whole week and you're just going to let him speak into that question. And remember, it's just one thing. It's just one one thing. Make it one thing. It isn't a list of 10 things. What happens then is the one thing gets really diluted in a list of 10 things. It's just one thing, and it's one thing you can accomplish, as you saw, in the next two to six months. Two to six months. Between now and, say, Labor Day weekend. Two to six months. And then you're going to, at the end of that period, when you've accomplished that, right, because you're going to get about it, and you're going to accomplish it, and then you're going to revisit this process again and again. God, what now? God, what now? And it's just this ongoing conversation that you have with the Lord, focusing your life like a laser beam. And some people ask the question, what are some typical answers that I might come up with? There are no typical answers. God will have a custom, tailor-made answer just for you, just for you and your spouse, just for you and your family. Sometimes it might be really, really tactical. Other times it might be more broad and sweeping. The point is that you're going to lay this question out. What now, Lord? What now, God? And then you're going to let him steer you. You're going to let him direct you. The very same way that the sons of Issachar, who knew the direction that the nation of Israel needed to take, the same way God spoke to them. And we're going to raise up a new tribe of Issacharites, we'll call them. You and me and us, people who understand the times, people who are spiritually attuned to God and his word, the word of the Holy Spirit, and who know exactly what to do, all the way down to the level of me. What do I do, God? What do me and my spouse do, God? What do me and my family do? What do you want, God, us to be about in this season? No heads in the sand. No heads in the sand. What now, God? That's your homework. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to get still and quiet with Jesus. I just invite you to press in with him. You might even start to ask that question in this space. What now, God? We know who and whose we are, What now, God? 
what now, God? God, I pray for us. I pray, God, that as we lay that question out before you, what now, God, that you would speak loudly and clearly to every single person who asked that question. pray, God, that that would be a powerful interaction between us and you, this community and you, that walls would be knocked down because of that conversation. What now, God? And I have no doubt, God, that the assignment that you give to some of us is going to be huge. For some of us, we're going to get an assignment and we're going to go, you've got to be kidding. That? Really, God. And I pray that you would give holy boldness to every single one of us. That we wouldn't see the task that you're calling us to or challenging us to as insurmountable but that we would see it as an assignment from you that you're going to aid us with the power of your Holy Spirit that you actually want it to be accomplished and you're actually going before us, around us, behind us toward mission accomplishment of that very thing. What now, God? Give us a boldness and a strength and a courage I have no doubt that some of us are going to be invited to step out and have conversations we never dreamed we would be having with people. Conversations pointing people to you, inviting people to you. God, anoint those conversations. Be around and be softening the hearts of the people who we have those conversations with. God, I pray for us as a community that having faith-sharing conversations would just be part of normal, everyday life for every single one of us. What now, God? What do you have for us? How do you want us to bring your kingdom? How do you want us to lock arms with you, God? What does it look like for us to be a modern-day tribe of Issacharites? What now, God? We're yours, and we entrust that question to you. We entrust the answer to you. We pray, God, that you would speak loudly, clearly, boldly, and that we would act, that we would go, that we would do that we would engage, laser focus, engage. Not frantic, 
intentional, purposeful, quadrant two. The most important stuff in the world, Jesus, it's your stuff, and we give ourselves to you. We give ourselves to your task, your mission, moving the rock that you call us to move, Jesus. Jesus.